sometimes you know that they're just not going to talk to you uh so you have to be undercover uh and you can't always be completely honest about what you're doing because there's no way you would get access to a lot of these stories <sighs> i've just seen so many horrific things <laughs> um uh you know what the hardest thing is actually is um is wildlife tourism I don't think that the your average person is aware of just how bad things are and the fact that we are in the midst of a sixth mass extinction and every single year thousands of species are going extinct. Aaron Gikowski, also known as Bertie, is an award-winning environmental photojournalist. He began life working a corporate job in the United Kingdom, and after some years, Bertie felt dissatisfied with what he was doing and decided to change his work and his lifestyle pretty significantly. So I've uh, interviewed a few people who've made massive career changes, and what Bertie did was right up there with some of the most extreme. He left his job managing a modelling company and went to travel in Africa, where he stayed for some years after finding work as a photographer documenting the shark trade industry. After some pretty hardcore projects and challenges, he now works documenting human wildlife issues around the world. I think what Bertie has done is inspiring to a lot of us. One of the best parts of his story is his willingness to break that mould of what is expected of everyday people. And he traded in a really comfortable life to work on something that he saw as a huge issue. After listening to the episode, have a look at some of his work at Aaron underscore Kikoski, and you might feel like tackling an issue that you yourself are passionate about. In this episode, we talk about his journey, some of his hardest projects, and solutions that he feels would make an impact. Brilliant. Well, Bertie, thanks very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's really, really great to have you on. Um, so firstly, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into uh, environmental photojournalism? Because that's not what you've always done, is it? No, I actually, um, I did the kind of standard uh, life that people do in the UK, I guess, when you go from, you know, university to a job in London, working in the corporate world. Um, and then it was kind of in about my late 20s, I kind of realized I was very dissatisfied with what I was doing. I was actually running a modeling agency in the UK and kind of, you know, looking in the mirror and not liking what I saw both physically and metaphorically. My hair was getting more blonde, the teeth were getting whiter uh, and thought, you know, you've got to get out of this life and you've got to do it now. Um, I'd always been a huge fan of David Attenborough. He's a, as with most Brits, you know, we, we yeah. adore him. Um, always a huge hero of mine and, and I grew up with his documentaries um, and I realized that you know if I wanted to change my life and do something completely different uh, then now was the time to do it um, so I told my business partner I wanted out and then uh, within a couple of months I was doing a bit of backpacking and then had signed on to uh, do a wildlife filmmaking course at the Kruger National Park uh, everyone, friends and family thought I was completely mad. I had no experience in the um, <laughs> in the industry at all. Yeah. Um, but I just thought, let's let's go out there and let's try it. Um, so then I, from there, my 
goal was to actually start looking at um, doing stories about the marine world. Mm. Um, and so I went from the crew, I went to Mozambique, and there I met a couple of guys who were working on a documentary about shark finning. I spent a couple of years working on that, living in the wilds of Mozambique and, and making this documentary. Because um, I guess kind of my original plan when I set, up, set off on the journey was to try and broadcast the beauty of the natural world with people and share it with as, as many as possible. Yeah. However, when I was out there, I started to see that kind of things weren't quite as they seemed on those David Attenborough documentaries. Mm. Um, and everywhere you turned, wildlife was being hammered, whether it was in the form of, uh, you know, overfishing or the shark fin trade or deforestation, uh, the exotic pet trade. Uh, traditional medicine, uh, there were actually all of these external forces that were pushing the animals that I had spent my youth watching to the point of extinction. Yeah. Um, and so I became very interested, or some might say obsessed, uh, with covering this, these types of stories. So then I uh, started traveling all over Africa um, and looking at different issues, and I covered stories about... Um, you know, the tortoise mafia in Madagascar or seal clubbing in Namibia. I lived on a commercial tuna vessel in South Africa. I did pieces about elephant problems in Zimbabwe. Uh, for me, they, these were much richer, more complex, more interesting, um, and ultimately more important stories than just simply making uh, documentaries about how great the world is and how amazing wildlife is. Yeah. Um, so... Then I started working with magazines, started making documentaries. Um, and yeah, I've been very fortunate that over the last, I think it's been about nearly 15 years now, I've traveled to some of the most remote places on earth uh, covering these stories um, as a photographer, as a filmmaker, and as a journalist. Um, and hopefully um, doing some good along the way. Yeah, you know, it's very hard. How do you measure success in this line of work? And success comes in many forms. It's whether you're just, uh, I don't like that sort of fluffy term, but whether you're raising awareness with people or there's tangible uh, results, like, you know, you might I might do an expose on a, on a zoo and then the government will go and confiscate the animals or whether it's just people who are getting in touch saying, oh, I saw a film you made and now I have changed my habits through yeah. X, Y, and Z. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, success comes in many forms and, you know, uh, over the years, I think my work has kind of morphed more and it's now I look at a lot of, you know, it's always been quite heavy subjects, but it's now it's even getting kind of darker. Uh, I've done a lot on wildlife tourism in the past five years. So traveling around uh, zoos and wildlife, for, uh, wildlife tourism attractions around the world. Um, and most recently, um, some projects that I'm working on about uh, the illegal wildlife trade. All the yeah. fun stuff. Yeah, all the fun stuff. I was um, I recently started following you on Instagram, and um, lots of uh, like you said, fun stuff, but important. Fun, stuff. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean, pop, pop a valium before having a look on my Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of know what you mean about the raising awareness thing as well. I suppose in your line, because actually, I mean, again, funny talking about David Attenborough. I've literally got a what I hope is a self or personally written letter just down by my feet from David Attenborough because I had a similar journey where I studied zoology and was obsessed with his documentaries um, and then when I started studying it I sort of realized that a lot of the stuff wasn't aimed at conservation necessarily and obviously there's that background kind of this is the amazing parts of our world you know we should be protecting this but I feel like he's really started focusing on focusing, yeah yeah 
Yeah, absolutely. And and look, of course, we need to see the beauty of the world as well, because if it's all just doom and gloom, then no one's going to watch. Yeah. And conservation is a very hard sell in the media and, and mm -hmm. uh, with broadcasters. It's a nightmare trying to get our, our shows out there. Um, so look, everything, we always have to have some hope as well. So, you know, we always try and include that in our documentaries. There are people who are out there who are working to try and save animals, kind of dedicating their lives. Um, so I don't want to, certainly don't want to be too critical of the big man of, of Attenborough. He's done more than anyone on earth uh, to raise awareness uh, about wildlife. And it's great to see that actually over recent years, he kind of has shifted his focus. Yeah. I guess when you're, when you're 95, you suddenly realize, oh, fuck it, I can just kind of say whatever I want. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it does. It kind of, it doesn't matter anymore. And he's really speaking his mind. Um, and yeah, I mean, he's an absolute hero. I sent him my book. I produced a book called Animosity uh, uh, last year, and yeah, he sent me a handwritten note as well. I mean, who no. does that? Who who goes out of their way to to respond to us with with handwritten notes like I know. His stature? Yeah, yeah, absolute, absolute. Oh, that that phrase is very overused, but he truly is a legend. He is a legend. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, um, yeah, and I guess so. A lot of the work you do now is on human wildlife conflict right and that's something that he's he's delved into more but part of the you know the point of the podcast is to make these things relatable to people and, and get people to act and i was wondering if you could talk a bit about the human wildlife conflict you've seen obviously you've been to really exotic places and that's when i was first introduced to the term that's what i started to think is in these far-off lands you know you have leopards going into villages and you have poaching you have all sorts of things going on in terms of conflict. Um, yeah. But how is it? How is it broadly? How does it broadly kind of relate to everybody in the world? There's going to be human wildlife conflict if my sister's dog doesn't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> going to be sold off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> going to be sold off to the Chinese if it keeps barking. Um, sorry, so the dog put me off. Can you just repeat the the final part of your question? Yeah, I was just saying how how does human wildlife conflict kind of relate to all of us because it seems sometimes like a bit of a far off exotic concept, but. It does. And that's the really difficult question is to how to actually get people to care. Like, I, I remember a friend of mine, he said to me, I think he was being a bit facetious, but he was like, ah, oh, so you know what, sharks are being killed. Doesn't yeah. really matter. We've got dolphins. Um, but yeah, people have got enough problems in their lives to worry about. And um, so how do we get them to care about the fact that um, all of these exotic animals in these far, far flung places are being killed? Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult. Um, I mean, things, we care about things that um, affect us personally mm. um, or things that have a direct impact upon upon our life. Um, and I think it's, um, as well, it's trying to get across that we have a moral or a philosophical, we have a deeper obligation to try and protect some of these animals. Uh, and when you explain to people that we are now contemplating a world where in just a couple of generations we might not have manta rays uh, great white sharks uh, lions elephants um and people are kind of horrified i don't think that the your average person is aware of just how bad things are and the mm. fact that we are in the midst of a sixth mass extinction and every yeah. single year thousands of species are going extinct um people are well, i think it's partly people are just not aware and also people um just don't want to know about yeah. it. They, they say I've got a difficult enough life as it is. And actually things have got worse, not better because of COVID. 
um, because of uh, we all just worry about putting food on the table now and we worry yeah. about our, our, our personal health. Um, so it's just becoming more and more difficult. Um, so that's why, like, I, that's why I think, of course, I come from the angle that the media has such a huge role to play. And we have the opportunity to get some of these more difficult messages out, um, but doing it in an accessible manner. Um, and whether it is through the likes of, you know, David Attenborough documentaries that showcase the beauty of the natural world, whether it is through some of the more hardcore investigations and having that kind of shock value. I've just released uh, an investigation just yesterday about the dog meat trade in Indonesia. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of hitting people over the head with a sledgehammer, but that also needs to be done as well. Um, so, yeah, I think everyone kind of has an opportunity to... You know, you first of all, take more of an interest in these areas, but also to use their skills for the good of, for the good of the planet. Um, yeah. And it's great what you're doing, you know, as a teacher and you're also doing this podcast in your spare time. And just people, if, you, if you're feeling overwhelmed by everything that's happening out there, just by educating your, your children about it, just by sharing posts on social media, just by taking an interest and reading that story on the news. Mm. Um, we all have the opportunity to make the world a better place for wildlife. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You, you mentioned accessible manner, um, and I was just gonna ask what you meant by that. I know it sounds like a bit of an obvious question, but I remember watching, when I was really young, I remember watching conservation adverts. There were often adverts about, you know, give to this, and they were obviously, yeah. you know, donating, um, asking for donations. But they were quite hard hitting, and as a kid, I yes. didn't find that very accessible. So how do you kind of make, make your well, films and your photos accessible to different people? Well, we were kind of working on a style uh, with our documentaries a while back called Funservation. My colleagues hated that, uh, but I kind of stuck with it. Um, and that was all about um, entertaining people at the same time as, uh, as educating them. It was kind of subliminal education. Okay. So we were doing kind of short, fun, silly films that actually really had conservation at, at their heart. Um, because a lot of documentaries that you watch now on TV, again, it's all about the beauty. And then they might dedicate kind of 30 seconds at the end to like, oh, actually, these animals are being kind of all hunted towards extinction. Right. Yeah. Um, so. So, yeah, I think we have to make it um, that there is definitely scope for the harder hitting investigations. Um, but we also need to tread a little bit softly. I'm, I'm always very reticent when i'm covering these stories of not just so, so i'll give example of the dog meat trade again if you just show images of like butchered dogs then people aren't necessarily going to look at the images but if you have a shot that is much more suggestive you know you have a shot of a dog in a bag next to a like a live dog that's been kind of you know tied up and is in a bag next to a cooking pot that's going to have a lot more impact than that mm. dog with its throat slit two minutes later yeah. yeah so so yeah we also have to be very careful as as journalists as how we cover these stories yeah and do, do you have to be careful when you go into these communities uh do you get a lot of pushback from the local communities do they see you as a threat to their lifestyles because i know a lot of i mean i haven't done tons of research abroad but uh, when i have done often people have been pretty accommodating but it does strike me that a lot of people make their livelihoods from, you know, certain poaching actions and things like that. So I, I uh, you've got to be careful about that. Yeah. Um, but I also think it's the role of a journalist is to show both sides of the story. 
Yeah. Um, so a lot of the time, if you're communicating that to people, is like, well, you want to sh show your side of the story, and um, it's not necessarily about demonizing people. Yeah. Um, then a lot of the time you find that people are quite receptive to that. Okay. Um, sometimes you know that they're just not going to talk to you, uh, so you have to be undercover. Uh, and you can't always be completely honest about what you're doing because there's no way you would get access to a lot of these stories. Yeah. Um, so it really depends. Like when we were you know, living with shark fishermen in remote Mozambique, you know, they were so wonderful and warm and welcoming to us. And, you know, to them, they weren't really doing anything wrong. And um, mm. in many people's eyes, they're not. They were just trying to make a living for one shark. They could make like $200. Uh, which is the equivalent of like three months wages for a single shark yeah. and you know if you and i were living there and we had that opportunity we'd do exactly the same thing yeah um so yeah uh i think a lot of the time it, but it's really on a story by story basis in terms of uh, how you work with the locals yeah and is it difficult being amongst the locals i, I know it's kind of you know journalists role to just be amongst it and document what's going on but is it difficult being in areas where that human wildlife conflict is pretty clear and you're not really doing much yeah uh, yeah i get again i think it is so dependent on the story because some stories are very complex and yeah. you know they're not black and white many shades of gray and then there's others where i think they are pretty black and white and it's just like come on like we've got to be doing better here. Yeah. Um, you know, I use the example of a lot of wildlife tourism attractions, dress, dressing orangutans up and making mm -hmm. them perform for people in shows. Almost no one in their right mind just don't understand how people can enjoy that or how the people who are doing it can justify it. Yeah. Um, so when it's stories like that, you know, are happy to come down a lot harder on, on people who are involved in that industry. Um, but yeah, when it's, um, you know, whether it's people, again, people in the dog meat trade who are, mm. uh, they've been eating dogs for many generations and, you know, it's quite sustainable in many ways. Sometimes the dogs, uh, don't really suffer. Um, then it, can you be really condoning them? I mean, can you really be coming down so hard and saying this is wrong? Also, that's not, not going to go down well with people. Uh, no one likes to have a finger wagged at them and say, you can't, you cannot do this. Sure. Yeah. Um, so yeah, absolutely. Always showing uh, two sides of every story, unless it's uh, unless it's very plain and obvious that what's happening is wrong. Yeah, sure. And what has um, I'll ask you too here? What's been the most difficult thing you've had to film, and what's been you think the most significant thing you've filmed or or documented? <sighs> most difficult thing? Oh my word! I mean, I, I've just seen so many horrific things. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh you know what the hardest thing is actually is um is wildlife tourism um people will say about about the dog meat and you know i've just been there and i've just been witnessing dogs having their throat cuts or being hit over the head and killed um and i will say that like at least that death is is normally quite quick whereas you go to wildlife tourism attractions and these animals are suffering for their entire lives mm. um and the way that they have been caught um, they're often caught from the wild. Their parents will be killed in the process. Um, they're then trained using these horrific methods, beatings or electrocutions. They're then made to perform in shows. Elephants, for example, they go through something called the crush when they're young and they're about to enter wildlife tourism attractions where they put them like in a wooden crate and they just beat them until they're fully submissive. Yeah. Um, and that that's just 
and you know, for me that's that's horrific and it's absolutely heartbreaking. I've never actually, I should say, I've never witnessed that myself. Um, but then seeing these animals and their spirits are completely broken at a lot of these wildlife tourism attractions. And when you have a sentient animal like uh, an elephant or an orangutan uh, that can live to more than 50 years old, uh, yeah, that's, that equates to half a century of, of suffering at the hands of wildlife tourism attractions. And for what? For what? So we can go there and we can take photos of them. There's absolutely zero educational benefit to, to most of these places at all. It's, it's purely exploitation. Yeah. Um, I, I worked on a documentary called Eyes of the Orangutan. So it was the first uh, ever documentary to look at the orangutan tourism industry, which is why I probably keep going back to that. So we spent, myself and the crew spent three years uh, traveling around all of these orangutan tourism operators, um, particularly around Southeast Asia. Uh, and you can just say th these are one of the most intelligent animals on earth. They share 97% DNA with humans. Yeah. Um, and at wildlife tourism attractions, they suffer from uh, stress, uh, depression. They're often wildly overfed or underfed. Um, and you can just see behind their eyes, they're just completely gone. Yeah. Um, and that, I think, so those are really the stories that um, hit hardest. Um, I've also done a lot of work on the exotic pet trade um, and, you know, uh, I've seen a huge amount of suffering for that industry as well. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really been kind of 13 years of working on these kind of hardcore, quite um, quite distressing subjects. And it's yeah, very yeah. hard to kind of pick one kind of being worse than another. I think yeah. also it depends where you are in your life as well when you're covering them. If you're in a bit of a vulnerable or a difficult spot in life and then you're like, okay, now you've got to go around dog slaughterhouses in Cambodia, it's not always going to end well. Yeah, that is tough tough role i think doing that i um i just got a question because you're talking about education as well and it's it, i don't wanna, well i suppose i'm putting you on the spot but it's one i've never really been able to to answer myself because they played such a big role when i was younger and my interest in animals but what's your take on on zoos in that case um i think 99.9 percent .9 of zoos um serve no real purpose mm. um and worse than that, most of them lead to a, a huge amount of animal suffering. Uh, of course, there's some zoos where they um, they do help towards um, scientific research. They do help with conservation. But even the, the, the kind of conservation angle, most of the animals kept there uh, aren't threatened with extinction anyway. So yeah. it's very, very rare that uh, a zoo is actually really doing work for conservation. And of course, the other angle that people use is education. But I can tell you that the major majority of people who go to a zoo um, won't learn anything in the process. Right. So actually, all of these, uh, you know, all the fundamental pillars with which zoos were formed are flawed. Okay. Um, that's not to say that there aren't a few zoos that where the animals are well looked after and they um, they do um, work for conservation. They do have an educational purpose, but not many at all. Yeah, I suppose to to play devil's advocate, it's because um, something that I think is so important in what you do is I know you said it's a fluffy term, I kind of agree, but the raising awareness in terms of getting people connected with nature, which seems to be a big issue at the moment. How do you kind of fill that niche of, of a zoo 
because I suppose I agree that you go to a zoo, you don't learn much. But when I was mm -hmm. young, I, I just loved it. It was my favourite thing. And that was what initially, along with Atom yeah. that's what initially got me yeah. involved. So how do you fill that niche? Well, first of all, there's, there's in, some incredibly good rescue centres around the world. Mm. Um, so if you're going and you are seeing animals that have been saved from crappy zoos or from circuses or from exotic pet owners, um, then I think that, that um, there's a real place for that. But of course, then the animals, they have to have enough room. And in, in most zoos as well, they have insufficient space. I mean, that's clear. Um, but there are, I mean, I've been to places in Thailand before. There's an incredibly good uh, elephant rescue center. So that's one option. In, in an ideal world, if this was utopia, um, what you might have is, say, for example, one government-run institution per country. Um, so you wouldn't um, you wouldn't allow the private ownership of animals at all, mm. and you would ensure that this facility was run um, with the help of scientists, with the with the help of the world's top vets, and it was really done properly, rather yeah. than having this kind of scattergun approach um, and this privatization model where anyone can start running a zoo, and you know, a lot of the times they're stealing the animals from the wild, then they stick yeah. them in small cages and they don't feed them properly and look after them well. Tiger King style, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That yeah. that's not the way to do it. Yeah, um, but but that's never going to happen. Um, so one way, I, yeah, so going back to your point is I would say, first of all, rescue centers, um, there's a role for them. And also, um, new technology can really help. Uh, so for example, the role of the likes of VR. And uh, now if you've ever been on an African safari via VR, of course, it's not the same as doing the real thing, but we also have to be pragmatic and say that not everyone can afford to go on a safari, but if you stick on a, a set of VR goggles, and you go to a watering hole in Kenya, it blows your mind. And it is yeah. so much better to see animals via VR in their natural habitat than to go to a zoo and see them stuck in a cage where they're suffering. Yeah, no, I think that was fair. That would be great to have in school. Just 20 minutes of your lesson taken out would give the kids a exactly. seven yards. Brilliant. Exactly. <laughs> awesome. Um, and again, I suppose, how do you relate this? What, what do people in more urban environments what can they sort of do to contribute to this? I mean, I know they can go to events. I actually find it quite hard to find environmentally focused events, but in terms of your work, photojournalism, things like that, yeah. how can people get involved more in, in that sort of work? How can they? Um, well, well, first of all, there's, there's things that are happening on everyone's doorsteps. Um, I'm here in Brighton now and there's foxes running around everywhere. Hmm. And um, there's some amazing photojournalists who have been doing work. Neil Aldridge, Matt Moran have been doing fantastic work on urban foxes. Um, so everywhere you go, everywhere you turn, there's interesting things happening. So if you have um, a particular interest in photojournalism and conservation, then you just pick up your camera and you, you start speaking to people, you start exploring. And maybe you speak to the authorities and perhaps there's rescue centers. Um, you could aim to you know, work with them. You could take your camera on your holidays with you um, and start shooting stories. Um, so really there's there's not that many sort of barriers to entry now. It's also, you can get amazing cameras now for not that much money as well. So there's lower barriers. Um, so yeah, that, that would kind of be my advice for anyone who is interested in this story and in the industry is you just, just start exploring. Yeah, and it what takes, about, it's Sorry, tough. God. I was just gonna say, it's, it's, I'm not gonna dress it up and say that this is uh, 
a really it sounds kind of exotic this line of work but it's tough it's really difficult and yeah. particularly over recent years the pay is often little to, to non-existent um you kind of put your body and your soul on on the line for this type of work so if it's something that you want to do then you really have to dedicate your entire life to it, it has to take over everything to yeah. the point where it's an obsession okay I like that. Say you're not obsessed. Say you just, you are someone who's working in the city and you really want to contribute like, you know, like yourself, maybe you are struggling a bit with what you're doing in the city or you're finding there's a bit of a lack of purpose, which anecdotally I find a lot of my, you know, peers are finding, you know, it's just nine fives all the time. You do work with NGOs. I know that's different because you are very involved in, in doing media for them and things like that. But in terms of working with NGOs, volunteering, doing stuff outside of work. Um, can you talk about your, your NGO experience, your campaigning experience that I think people might? Um, yeah, there's, there's always, um, I'm always a little bit wary because there's a lot of these kind of uh, volunteerism projects that yeah. I'm always very skeptical of. And a lot of people who are claiming to be doing work to help wildlife was actually that they're doing a lot more harm than than good so yeah. first of all it's about picking the the right ngo to work with uh which is very very important uh and doing your research beforehand which is tough because there's a lot of greenwashing going on i was going to and ask have, how do you do we that? have you have all these horrific places in south africa for example and they claim that they're lion conservation centers and they're rescuing lions and they're just explo exploitative and um you know the lions are being bred and then they're being used as essentially as props and then when they're too old they're sold to can hunting and they're shot mm. um so it is it is very difficult um and there's no there's no definitive answer of of how you can kind of get into this or you can or you can help people there's a lot of really good scientists i should say um, doing work and that's that's one option is you can uh, speak to researchers and scientists and they're the ones who are on the ground they're the ones who need help and resources and and media coverage uh so that's another angle okay yeah i'm just thinking about people you know making because it is very relatable i feel like people really really empathize with this sort of stuff but again people find it difficult to sort of get get involved yeah where do i start yeah, well, exactly. Yeah, particularly if you are, I mean, you know, it's easy for someone like me to say I'm obsessed, but even then, you know, I became a teacher and took a different route. And I, I think it's interesting for people who work in the city, for example, who are just like, I would like to be involved in this for a bit of time. Yeah. yeah. And when you're on holiday as well, that's always a good time. Say you've got yeah. a couple of weeks away, you don't just want to sit on your ass in the sun the whole time. How, do a little bit of research and find if there's um, some interesting things with regards. Uh, environmental issues or, or wildlife happening locally and then and then go and explore yeah and yeah. i realize i realize that not everyone wants to go to the extreme like i've done and kind of spend their whole lives doing it and some people are just happy to kind of do what they can and when they can and that's also that's also incredibly valuable and uh, you know, at least at least there's people who are paying an, in, an interest even though they're not necessarily sort of dedicating their entire lives to it yeah definitely Definitely. Um, are you allowed to tell us a little bit about what you might be working on in the future? Any interesting projects that are coming up? Um, <laughs> there's one project that's pretty much taking every working minute of every day. Oh. Yeah, I can't say too much, but it's a, it's a global documentary that I'm working on that focuses on, let's just say, very charismatic animals. 
and cool. some of the global threats that they are facing mm-hmm. in the form of the illegal wildlife trade, exotic pet trade, and wildlife tourism. It's a very, it's a very broad documentary looking at a number of different animals, um, which is both difficult as a filmmaker uh, and also exciting. Uh, difficult in the sense that. Um, your focus ends up kind of being all over the place, yeah. um, but exciting in the sense that you're doing, um, a tr- you're offering truly a global perspective on a on a type of animal. So, um, yeah, it's we're, we're we're at the moment we're in the middle of pre-production. We start filming in September, and this is going to go on well until next year. Um, yeah, people don't realize when they see like a documentary on TV that's an hour long, <laughs> they don't realize how much has gone into making these things. Oh, yeah. yeah the yeah. blood, sweat, and tears, and years and years of work. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, super exciting anyway. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a pretty hardcore one, a very yeah. hardcore, hardcore investigation. I can imagine. That was uh, my uh, favorite thing that Planet Earth started doing is the uh, behind, behind the scenes. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and actually, that's that's often some of the most interesting parts is what yeah. it takes to to get that shot, and how it takes. You might have to travel on a boat up the Amazon for three days just to go and like you know get a shot of an animal in the wild. But uh, like. Yeah, that's the realities of, of working in this industry is it's incredibly time consuming. It's, mm. It takes its toll on you physically and mentally. Um, but once you start doing it, it's very hard to do anything else. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Well, I mean, it all sounds amazing. So, um, Brilliant. Bertie, I just want to ask you one last thing, which we always ask on the podcast, which is, is if there is one action that you would recommend people take to help the planet, what would it be? Oh, well, of course, my focus would be wildlife. So yeah. I guess um, it's just to, um, I guess, be cognizant of what's happening around you uh, and to to pay an interest. Um, it's very easy to skip over these stories because they are difficult or they're upsetting. Um, but by confronting them, that's really the way that we are going to make positive change. If we just ignore them, if we put our fingers in our ears, then nothing is ever going to happen. So just open your eyes, open your ears, um, and allow yourself to go down some difficult paths. Brilliant. A great place to end. Thank you very much, Bertie. Appreciate it. Cheers. Thanks, Max.